Good morning. My name is Steve Moon. The Old Testament reading is found in Isaiah 30, 18 through 26 from the message. But God is not finished. He's waiting around to be gracious to you. He's gathering strength to show mercy to you. God takes the time to do everything right, everything. Those who wait around for him are the lucky ones. Oh, yes, people of Zion, citizens of Jerusalem, your time of tears is over. Cry for help, and you'll find it's grace and more grace. The moment he hears, he'll answer. Just as the master kept you alive during the hard times, he'll keep your teacher alive and present among you. Your teacher will be right there, local and on the job, urging you on whenever you wander left or right. This is the right road. Walk down this road. You'll scrap your expensive and fashionable God images. You'll throw them in the trash as so much garbage, saying, good riddance. God will provide rain for the seeds you sow. The grain that grows will be abundant. The cattle will range far and wide. Oblivious to war and earthquake, the oxen and donkeys you use for hauling and plowing will be fed well near running brooks that flow freely from mountains and hills. Better yet, on the day God heals his people of the wounds and bruises from the time of punishment, moonlight will flare into sunlight, and sunlight, like a whole week of sunshine at once, will flood the land. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, my name is Terry Moon. The New Testament reading is found in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 17 through 21. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old has gone. The new is here. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation that God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. We are therefore Christ's ambassadors, as though God were making his appeal through us. We implore you on Christ's behalf, be reconciled to God. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Holly Martin. Please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 1, 46 through 55. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. 
For he made his, this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. The Gospel of the Lord. Praise be to God. Christ. You may be seated. Good morning. How are we doing? I am really uh, pumped to be here with you guys again. It's, it's good to be back. Um, it seems like every time Glenn goes to Europe, I get the call. So I'm just, I'm, I say, hey, can I have your calendar in advance? And anytime his travel takes him across the ocean, I know it's me. So I'm really glad uh, to be here. Um, as you know from last time, if you were here, my wife and I have moved, recently moved back from uh, California. And so it's great to be back in the state of Colorado. Anybody love Colorado here? Yeah. Driving in this morning, seeing kind of the frosty mist sort of cloud over the peak was phenomenal. Um, We are continuing on this morning with a series that we've been in calling Sacred. And I love this series because in essence it's really trying to answer one simple question. Who are we as the people of God? What does that mean? What does that look like? And in a church like ours that is non-denominational or interdenominational, sometimes we maybe wonder that. What, what anchors us? What, what, what do we really adhere to and hold to as far as practices and beliefs? And this sacred series reminds us of the things that we're connected to, the story of God that we're a part of, the story of God's people that we're connected to, perhaps far more intimate than we realize And the image that that Glenn has been using is this idea of a rope tied from the barn to the house. And it comes from all of our favorite show, Little House on the Prairie, right? That's everyone's favorite show, right? Forget Lost and whatever else, it's Little House on the Prairie. Um, So what would happen was when it was wintertime, they would go out to work in the barn, but they knew that there could be a massive storm that would blow through, and so they would hook up a rope from the barn to the house so that they could find their way back home. And in that same way, this series Sacred really attempts to say, how do do we get back home? How do we be reminded of what we're anchored to, of where home is, of who we really are as God's people? So we've been talking about things like the Holy Spirit and the scriptures. Um, And this morning, we, we shift slightly to this idea of confession, both private and corporate in nature. And before we, uh, before we go any further, uh, I just want to pray and invite the Lord to be uh, in the middle of uh, everything that happens this morning. We would really hear from him and not just hear a message that our hearts would be good soil for what he wants to put inside of us this morning. Let's pray. Father, we, we thank you that you're our teacher. And Holy Spirit, you... By your very nature, you remind us of things that are true. You remind us of who you are and who we are in you. And so we just ask that you would open our hearts, that you would open our minds to you, that you would help us to experience you in such a way this morning that we would be changed when we leave. We just thank you that you call us your people that we have a title in you as sons and daughters that will never be taken away. We love you, Father, and it's in your great name we pray. Amen. 
Every once in a while, I'm reminded that memories are, are full of power. They can, they can provoke intense emotions at, at a moment's notice. And because I grew up in Colorado, but then moved away, been, been gone for over 15 years, as I drive around the state, I feel like I'm in a perpetual sort of reliving my childhood moments sort of a perpetual walk down memory lane. I grew up in Denver, and my parents live on the north side now, and we lived in just about every suburb of the west side of Denver. And so as I drive up, I, I see the house, and I'm like, oh, that's the house that I almost burnt down with fireworks. And, you know, that's the park where I, you know, got, got beat up by those five older boys who, I, you know, still recovering from that wound. And, and every, literally everybody, like, oh, there's, there's the soccer field where, you know, this and this happened. It, it's happening all the time as I'm driving around. And, um, but the moments that, that stick out to me the most, the, the memories that hit me the hardest, are the ones that are connected to my adolescence. What an odd time frame in our development, right? Um, when I think about my adolescence, there, there's, two, there's two main things that, that come to my mind. The first one is this. I'm convinced that in, during my adolescence, there were large parts of my brain that were in hibernation. <laughs> L- literally, like, there were parts of my brain that were just not yet working. And actually, those of you in the medical field know that your brain doesn't actually um, fully develop until you're in your 20s, and, and you go, okay, now it makes sense. Now I see why my children are making the decisions they are. The second thing that I think about connected to my adolescence is, is this. I don't know how I didn't die. <laughs> I ran with a group of friends, and we weren't, we weren't bad kids, you know, crazy party type kids, but adventure was the name of the game. I mean, our, our three core values as a crew of friends was adventure, 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 dangerous adventure. We loved it. I mean, there was any excuse to have some sort of, a lot of it was self-induced, right, adventure. There wasn't much adventure to be had, so we created it. I'll never forget one, one time we were in Boulder, and, you know, it was like, we, were, we lived in our vet at the time, it was the cool thing to go to Boulder, and walk, you know, walk Pearl Street and see all the colorful characters, Pearl Street, and we stopped for dinner, and it, you know, it was getting late, and, and I couldn't have, I was 15, 16 years old, and one of my friends, we were over pizza, just looked up and this wild flash came to his eyes and I knew what was about to come. It was the idea that was going to create drama, right? And he said, let's go climb the flat irons tonight. And without hesitation, all the guys around the table were like, yes, we're in. <laughs> now, mind you, it was November. It, it, was, it was sleeting outside. Freezing rain, sleet. We, we did not have jackets with us. In fact, I was wearing Tevas. So check this out. We're climbing. We, we decided to go climb the flat irons. Just connect these dots. At night, in the freezing rain, while wearing sandals. So here we go. I, we literally gave no thought to the ramifications of this decision. We're like, let's do this. And I'll never forget, as, as, the, as the night played on, we were scrambling and free climbing, and, and the rocks kept getting steeper and steeper, and then until I found myself. There on the face of this rock, the freezing rain coming down. Hello, at what point did I, how did I not wake up, right, and realize I'm in for trouble? And, and I'm, hey, I'm kind of on this face, and I realize I'm slipping. Well, yeah. 
And to, to my left was this, this very far drop off. Down below me was just lots of, you know, rocks. <laughs> and at the last moment as I'm slipping down, I had a friend that was up above me and he reached down. And at the last second before I felt like I was going to cascade right off into my death, right? He grabbed my arm and he pulled me up. I was deeply traumatized by that event in my life. I really was. It, it, it was like I, I finally realized, wow, this, this whole adventure thing could get me killed. And I remember as we walked down the backside of the Flatirons and kind of made our way down, I was, I was very shaken. And there was this tension inside of me. I was a part of the adventure crew, dangerous adventure at all costs, but yet I was shaken to the core. I felt like I was going to throw up. I was, you know, I, I swear if there was a mirror there, I would have been as white as a ghost. And this tension arose in me. And the tension was this. Save face with my friends and pretend like everything was okay. And that I was just, yeah, bring on this adventure. And this other side of me just wanted to be real with them. And kind of break down and cry and be like, I almost just died. I, I, I don't know what's going on inside of me, but I, I'm just shaken to the core. And so I was caught in this moment of going, I'm with my friends, my buddies, this fraternity of guys that knew no fear, but yet I was just a complete mess inside. I, I said nothing. I continued as life, life is normal, right? And I think that same tension exists in us now as adults. Things happen in our life, sometimes traumatic things, sometimes things that we create on our own that that we know we've gone way off the reservation and and we were either greatly injured or or we were were traumatized by something that we did or or someone did to us and we're, we're caught in this tension. Save face. Pretend like everything's okay on one side. And the other side is, I just want to be able to be real. I just want to be able to live openly and be authentic about what's going on inside of me, about, about what's happening in my life, about perhaps decisions that I've made that, that were just horrible. In a moment of weakness, I did this. To be able to share that with another person, we long for that. We hunger for that, but yet we're caught. Because we're afraid of the ramifications if we were to actually bring some of the stuff that we've done or been through out into the open and said, this is the real me. We go, what would happen? The fear for me was, maybe these guys won't invite me on their adventures anymore. And I loved the adventures. Maybe these guys would kind of think, well, a baker guy who's, you know, life of the party and loves to have fun, he, he's, he's kind of soft. I had those things, and I think we're plagued by those same thoughts. And so for, for some of us, we end up, instead of actually engaging in real relationships, we present this idealized image of ourselves to others. Everything's okay. Oh, it'll be fine. I'm all good. How you doing? I'm great. And inside, you're carrying a heavy burden. You're riddled with guilt, anxiety, and fear, and, and you go, what, what do I do with this? And we're caught. You know, there's a, an epidemic of loneliness in our country. There's been many studies, sociologists, different 
fields of expertise have done studies on us as Americans, and there really is this pervasive sense that, that we are more lonely than ever in this culture of, of great so-called social connection that we're alone. I think part of it is that, that we don't know how to bring the real us into relationship, that we're afraid. Sometimes uh, social media takes it right on the chin, right? Uh, this has created this kind of false sense of connection. And, and all, although I think social media in some ways is, is, you know, we can point a finger at it, rightfully so, but here's what I believe. Social media did not create this in us. Social media only highlights this in us. That we like to present this idealized image of ourselves. And in doing so, we miss out on one of the fundamental reasons that we were created. To authentically connect with God and to connect with others. And so today, as we talk about confession, this confession thing simultaneously moves in two directions. Where we learn to bring the authentic us to God and to each other. And in doing so, a part of us comes alive when we face that fear. I think in a day and age where so much feels plastic, I think when we have a moment where we reflect on, on this, we, we, we long for the authentic, the transparent, the meaningful connection with others. And we know it when it starts to happen. Or we know it when we see it in somebody else. We say things like, man, that person just, there isn't any pretense in them. There's no show in them. It's funny that this same longing that is in us is, has always been in the heart of the human, the human race. And yet our tendency to hide has also been. And so, again, we, we live in this tension. We find... Um, David writing this in Psalm 32, and we don't know for sure, but uh, it's very likely that we can attribute this psalm, for sure we can attribute it to David, but it's very likely that we can attribute this particular psalm, as well as 51, to being written right after everything went down with Bathsheba. And that, that, the, the more you read that story, you realize that that was just the beginning the, of the sequence of events of, of David just sort of taking this trail. Well, this, this was written. The, most scholars, theologians would, would agree it was written around that time. We'll pick it up, Psalm 32, they'll start in verse 3. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore, let all the faithful pray to you while you may be found. Surely the rising of the mighty waters will not reach them. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. Isn't that beautiful? It's this incredible contrast, right, between trying to sort of handle it on on his own and this, this weight that he was carrying, and yet 
this relief that came when he finally just came in agreement with what God had already said of his behavior, of his thoughts, of his attitudes. And he came into agreement with God and said, God, you're right, I'll admit this to you. And what I found interesting, I'd never seen in this passage before, was there's sort of two possibilities here for David and I believe for us. Either you're hiding or you're hiding in God. We all need a place of refuge. We all need a place of shelter to run when things in us go awry. And we have one of two choices. We either hide and create a shelter of our own that's dark and lonely, and we hide there. We go into hiding, or we learn to hide in God. He says, you are my hiding place. Isn't that interesting? That before he was just saying, I was kind of hiding my sin. It's two paths that that we have to choose. And the social and communal ramifications, I mean, of course with God we know there's ramifications, but even socially the ramifications are huge depending on which path that we take. Imagine for a second if this room went completely dark. They drew the curtains on the back doors and every ounce of, of light was removed from the room. And then you were directed by somebody like me up front that says, okay, Let's get to know each other. And we were all kind of feeling around the door. Who are you? What's going on? Okay, yeah, this is me. And, and there, was, there, was no, there was no context for the person that you were talking to. It was just sort of this voice. And when we're in hiding, that's what our relationships sort of feel like. We're interacting with somebody, but there's just sort of this, this difficulty in really tapping into who they are and what they're about because you've taken away this, this thing called sight and you don't see things as they are. That's a lot like what happens when we choose to live a life where we hide. Jesus knows this about us. And when he, when he walked the earth, he, he really addressed this by talking about light, that he was the light, that we're to come into the light. He says this in John three nineteen through 21, this is the verdict, light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light for fear that their deeds will be exposed. But whoever lives by the truth comes into the light so that it may be seen plainly that what they have done has been done in the sight of God. It's interesting here to me that it's, again, this contrast, right, of people hiding because of the evil things that they've done, and hating the light that is the light of God, the light of Scripture, the light of the Holy Spirit, the light of the observation of other followers of Jesus, them hating that. And there's other people that say, I want to come into this light. I want everything that I've done, thought, said to be in the light and seen plainly before God, that everything I've done has been before him and known by God. What's the difference between these two people, between these two peoples in the way they think about themselves and their interaction with God and others? It's this. It's what we read in our scripture reading in Corinthians. That God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, 
that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. The people that come into the light realize that there's nothing to fear. That Jesus has taken our place. This is the core of the gospel. And it's glorious to let ourselves reimagine it, rethink it, to let it re-soak in, if you will, to go, there's nothing to be afraid of. I can live free. I can come into the light as I am and say, yes, this is me. And in doing so, we actually highlight the great mercy, kindness, and love of God by saying, this is me. This is the wreck that is me. And God says, I've got it taken care of. It's what the completed work on the cross is all about. What a glorious relief. And this is why, one of the reasons that every week here at New Life Downtown, we have this corporate confession. And it's a beautiful thing where we all simply admit that in word and in deed and in intention and motive, we have fallen short of the perfection of God. And that we all come to him, we all come to the table that represents the completed work of Jesus. We all come together. There is no moral high ground when we live in a rhythm of confession. See, I believe that confession to God and to others is meant to be a central component of of the rhythm that we learn to live in. That it's not, oh yeah, I remember that one time that I confessed that really horrible thing I did to God and then I went out to coffee with that friend and told him and you know, that was like 15 years ago and I've been pretty good since then. You know, that, that's sort of living like, okay, you take the big 10, right? The 10 commandments and you're checking, okay, I haven't committed adultery today. I haven't lied, cheated, steal. Okay, this is good. And you, and you kind of, I don't know, I'm, I'm okay. But God literally wants this, this idea of, of, of corporate, private, to God, to others, confessional living to, to infiltrate who we are, to become, become part of what defines us as God's people. That we are a people that confess, that live openly before God and others. So I want to wrestle for just the next few minutes with one simple question. How does living in a rhythm of confession help form us into the people of God? In other words, how does regular confession to God and others help shape us into the community and the people that God says that we already are? The first thing is this. Confession tethers us to the unchanging grace, mercy, and kindness of God. We are to be a people that are marked by the kindness of God. To be reminded in confession to him over and over and over again that he is the God who forgives us who removes our sin from us as far as the east is from the west. It was fascinating for me in preparing for this message. I actually, I like to read from sort of different streams of theology. And because Catholics are very big on confession, I actually got to read a lot of Catholic theologians. And one of the things that I found super fascinating was they have a place and a person and like a location where you you go into, you guys, many of you know this, right? You go into the confessional and you go in, Father, forgive me, Father, for I have sinned. And you make your confession. 
And then at the very end, I love this. The father says, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. For Catholics, this understanding of God's kindness, mercy, and grace was so, is so important to them that they want people to hear from another human being the reality that God has forgiven them. That's how important it is. That's how central it is. That they want the person that comes to confess to not just theoretically connect with it, but to actually hear with their ears another person who is representing God say, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And so it was interesting for me as a Protestant to think through that. And, and as I was you know, kind of just saying, God, how integrated is this message into my life? One of the things that I was doing is thinking through things that, that I needed to just confess to God and, and allowing my imagination just to hear him say, hey, Brad, go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. And it retethers us, reconnects us to who God is. And we never, we don't come to God when we've blown it, hoping that he'll forgive us. Oh, oh, please, you know? Like, maybe if I roll all sixes here, that, that God will forgive me, you know? Just like, oh, come on. I think my lucky stars, maybe it's my lucky day that God will just happen to, you know, pardon me. No, no, we pray knowing. A confessional prayer is a prayer of knowing. It would, be, it would be kind of wild this morning, but also very interesting if we just said, okay, say it, what is it? What is, it? What is that sin in your life that you think that, God, I don't know, God, the jury's still out. God's still deciding on whether he's going to let me, let me go on that. I just, it's so crazy, it's pervasive, it's habitual. I don't, have I stepped beyond God's grace? And it's like, okay, just, who, who feels that way? Say it, say it. And, and you, know what, you know what would happen? No matter what was brought up, you know, you know what we as a congregation would turn and say to that person? Go in peace. Your sins are forgiven. Do you hear that inside of your heart this morning? When you think of that sin that you, that you feel ashamed of, that's maybe years in your past, that you just go, I can't believe. I hate that that happened. I hate that I did that. Hear the go in peace. Your sins are forgiven of God this morning. Tether your heart and your mind back to that reality. Be a people that is marked by the kindness of God. Say, 1 John 1, 9 will be the anthem of my heart. Confess your sins to God, right? And he will forgive you for he is faithful and just and will cleanse you from all unrighteousness. So the first way that confession helps us helps mold us into the people of God is it, it retethers us to the reality of God's mercy, God's completed work in Jesus. The second thing that happens in confession is that it awakens our sensitivity to sins we might otherwise be blinded to. When we live in a mo- modality, a, mo- a mold of confession, we start to invite the light of the scriptures, of the Holy Spirit, of the perspective of others to to look deeper into what's going on inside of us. I'll give you an example. Um, Periodically throughout my life, I've really wrestled with anxiety. 
And it, it can crop up at, at different times when I don't expect it. And, you know, I've been, I've been pastoring for, you know, a long time, like 13 years or, or so. And um, so I'm, I'm not new to, to teaching and getting up in front of people, but sometimes before I speak, I get incredibly anxious. And I, I pray through it, I talk through it, it's just there. And, and this week was one of those weeks. I just felt tremendous anxiety about coming and, and, and speaking this morning. And so I was just saying to the Lord in preparation, God, you see this anxiety in me. So I was just confessing, I'm really, I'm not in your peace. I'm not, I'm not at rest right now. So I, I brought that into, into this place of admitting it to God. And what was crazy was, I felt like God showed me, it's, it's, not, it's not the anxiety, Brad. It's, it's that you're, you're afraid. You're afraid of, of it not going well. You know, you're, you're speaking in, in, in place of, of Glenn, and people love Glenn, and, and you know, it's just all the insecurities that were underneath the anxiety. And do you see what happened there? So I brought this confession of anxiety, and, and God's like, yeah, you're really anxious. But because I brought it into light, the light revealed way more than I was initially aware of. See, we usually confess the outward behavior, and by God's grace, when we confess, he drills deep into the motivations and the intense intent of our heart, the underlying issue. And this is so important. My wife and I... Um, because we're, we're involved in really helping to strengthen marriages and families, we have couples from time to time come to us in crisis. And um, recently we've had a, had a couple come to us in crisis that lives in another state. And what was so interesting to me was essentially one of the core reasons their marriage had been falling apart was that they had both carried secrets for a very, 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 very long time. And what was interesting to me is it wasn't even necessarily these secrets that they carried that were destroying the marriage. It was the fruit of them carrying that secret for all these years. What it did to them on the inside. The lack of awareness that they had about all the other issues in their life that were perhaps even more damaging than the secret they'd carried. So what did that tell me? It tells me because they weren't willing to bring something into the light that it allowed other things that they were unaware of to, to, to go undetected and to fester. And if you're a homeowner, you know that the things that go wrong in your home that go undetected are the most damaging, right? When you have a leak that you discover three weeks after it started... And you're like, oh, this is not good, right? This is not good. Mold has grown, things have rotted, and the, you know, it's just horrible. It's the same way in our lives. The things that go undetected are often the most destructive, the things that we're blinded to. So when we bring things into the light of God, it allows, instead of our conscious to just be the only part of us that makes us aware the scriptures and the Holy Spirit and, and, and others are invited into the process and help us see ourselves accurately. And we can say, God, there it is. <sighs> Deal with my heart, God. Do surgery on me. So this living in a rhythm of confession, you can see it, right? It really starts to form us. 
when the scrutiny of God and the scriptures are allowed into our life over and over and over again, things that have no place in our lives or in the family of God, he, he's allowed to deal with. He's allowed to wash away. There's nothing that grows undetected inside of us that can damage us and the community of faith that we're a part of. So again, we answer this question, how does living in this rhythm of confession mold us, form us into the people of God? The next thing that happens is that confession fosters a deep and more complete connection with our spiritual family. Again, this idea of confession moves simultaneously in two directions, to God and to others. When we confess to God, there really is no part of that confession that's a, that's a self-disclosure because God already knows. But when we confess to other people, and a lot of times for us, it feels way more risky than confessing to God. We love, we're okay with this idea of taking a walk and talking to God about what's going on or you know, having some time in my journal. But when you say, yeah, now you know, call up a friend and tell them what happened. No, <laughs> no way. I got a football game to watch, God. I got, I got a mountain to go ski. Are you kidding me? You want me to bring that into the light? Have you ever been in, a, in a, any type of Bible study or social setting, a group of, of friends, and, and somebody brings something into the light? It's such a powerful moment. Two things simultaneously happen. That person that confessed has a great sense of relief. I'm not carrying this burden of what I've done alone anymore. We are not meant to carry the burden of sin, right? First and foremost, God is meant to take it away from us, but when we're still wrestling with what we've done, we need the weight of that to be, to be shared with people that we know and to see in them the realization, hey, yeah, it's true. God, God's forgiven you. You blew it, but God, God's forgiven you. The other thing that happens is it gives the people in that group who haven't maybe brought something in light the permission to do so. Some of the most um, fascinating changes in, in social dynamics that I've ever seen have been when one or more of the people I've been around to have brought something really vulnerable into the light. The relationships in that group, usually, if it's handled well, go to a totally different place. You know what that's called? That's called the family of God. Right? That's called spiritual connections between brothers and sisters in the Lord. It's taken out of the human plane and, and something mystical happens when we journey together at that level. We, we are connected with people. You know, I had, I had um, lunch with a dear friend of mine who's a missionary to, to Albania. And uh, we've been apart for years, haven't had much face time. And it was so awesome. We sat down at Payway, they're on Academy. And, we, and it, would took, it took like maybe 30 minutes. We're talking about, you know, all kinds of stuff. And before we know it, guess where we were? We were below the waterline in our lives. Here's what's going on. Here's, here's where the wrestle is in my life. Here's what I'm dealing with. It was amazing. So that's brotherhood, right? That's what we're meant to live in. A deep and more complete connection with our spiritual family. Safety and trust begin to develop in us. 
You know, I think one of the ways that we can practically, practically implement this discipline of, of confession is to spend time at the end of our day sort of reviewing our day. You ever done that? It's a little hard because you, you think through and you go, ooh, you know, I, I blew it there and I, you know, this was kind of off the mark and oh my gosh, I can't believe I said that or I can't believe I thought that or ooh. But when we do that, we get in the habit of just examining ourselves. And then when we see what we see, we look in trusted relationships for a time to just share that. Hey, here's what's going on. It's a game changer. This is something that's meant to mark us as the people of God. The last thing that happens when we live in this rhythm of confession is that it reconnects us to humanity's need for God's redemptive work. If you're like me, sometimes your heart can get cold to those in our culture that kind of externally show a lot of need and brokenness in one way or the other. And you're like, I know those people need help and we as Christians should help them. And, but I, I just, you know, I, I'll, I'll help them as long as it's comfortable for me and, you know, and hope some other, you know, more spiritual individual will really take care of them. Um, yeah. When we live in this rhythm of confession, it starts to eliminate the lines that we draw. Say, I'm, I'm a stable, healthy, whole individual who's worked hard for what I have. Yeah, in, in the natural, we, we might feel that way, but God's the one who gave us the strength and the intellect to, to have what we have. And then spiritually speaking, right? Why we had nothing to offer God. In fact, why we were an enemy of God in our hearts. He died for us. He reached out to us in a place of utter devastation and brokenness. So what happens is when we live in that place where we're reminded that but for the grace of God, save the grace of God, so go I down that dark path of destruction, right? We know that our lives is not, we can't take credit for anything in our lives that looks nice and neat and clean. We can't. And when we have that realization over and over and over again, when we encounter someone who we've labeled as messy, we don't respond to them the same way anymore. We say, I see you. I see that you've grown up not knowing about God's love. Well, I mean, how could you look at the family that you grew up in and the abuse that you suffered? And, and instead of a heart of, of judgment sometimes or just of distance, we're willing to press into those people and say, but for the grace of God. In fact, I'm reminded of that every day when I come to God and, and come to other people and confess my areas of brokenness and need of forgiveness. It changes us. The people that I see that have the most compassion, whether it be for the lost, that don't know God, the poor, those that are just running away from God and causing destruction, those that have the, that tender heart towards them, you know what? They're almost always the people that are very aware of their own stuff, their own tendency, their own brokenness, right? He who, is, he who has been forgiven much, loves much, 
The irony of that story that Jesus told is that it's our perspective, right? We've all, we're all in need of much forgiveness. And when we tap into that through confession, we love much. See, we can't give away that which we haven't allowed ourselves to receive. What we give to the other, other people in the ordinary actions of our day reveals what we have or have not been receiving from God. When we can't love, it reveals that we haven't been allowing ourselves to be loved by God. This idea of private and corporate, that was my iPad. <laughs> no mind, right? It'll recover. This idea of personal and corporate confession anchors our, our, our hearts and minds to some huge things, right? It deepens our appreciation of what Jesus has done for us. deepens our connection with other people. It's kind of like a maintenance. It keeps our, our souls healthy. And then it changes the way that, that we look at people that are sort of outside our own camp. So there's, there's implications as it relates to God, to ourselves, to other people that are close by, and even those people that, again, are, are somewhat removed for whatever reason from our inner circle. It changes every interaction in our lives. It's why it's part of this series. It's part of the rope that leads us back home.